Lord, I, I ask today that this message that I'm going to be sharing from your word, Lord, that really reveals to us the nature of who you are and the nature of our expression of adoration and joy. I ask, Lord, that these will not just be thoughts in our minds and hearts, but that we will experience the joy that you endeavor to bring to us. Lord, it says that the results of, of knowing you is joy. And so I ask, Lord, that we would be people of great joy, that we would be people that have a song in our hearts and would bring this joy wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. you may be seated. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1. And uh, I've already mentioned, it's interesting, you know, there's, there's really two Gospels, Luke and Matthew, that actually talk about Christmas, what we would consider Christmas. Christmas is about God becoming a man, and it's about the birth of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that in Luke's gospel, he frames it a little differently than anybody else, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But I want to just share an interesting story that I thought was fascinating. I read an article a number of years ago, and hopefully I won't mess up on the names of these poor Japanese people, because you know, I'm not used to saying their names. I've never heard some of them before. But Yoko Maruyama, who happened to be a Japanese organist, Working in Minneapolis, at one point was a very devout Buddhist. I mean, most Japanese are Buddhist. But she said, as she started to play the, the music of Johann Bach, she actually was introduced to Christianity and to the person of Jesus Christ through his music. Now, how many know who Bach is? He's pretty famous, right? A classical composer in the 18th century, German. Um, but I don't know if you know this about Bach. Bach was a very devout Christian. And Bach, in his musical scores, would write at the top of the ledger, and I actually read this a long time ago, and so I've done this with my sermons too, you know. He writes solely for the glory of God. For the glory of God. Isn't that beautiful? So Bach... Now, you think about this. He's, he's since, you know, obviously born in 1750-something. He's no longer with us, but his music is. And his music is having such an impact that uh, currently in the nation of Japan, many Japanese people are actually becoming Christians as a result of an uh, 18th century composer. I mean, I think that's kind of fascinating. And it's got something to do with that Bach's music is actually designed to tell the story about Jesus. And after you get past, you know, the orchestration and you start seeing some of the words of his music, it's very powerful. And um, there's a, a fellow by the name of Masasaki Suzuki, who's the founder and conductor of the Bach Collegium in Japan that has spawned many hundreds of similar societies throughout the country. And during the Passion Week, the Holy Week, you know, the, the week leading up into Easter, Suzuki will actually, you know, do a, a concert. And these are, this was like, I was reading this article eight years ago. And so eight years ago, to attend one of his concerts in Japan, $600 a ticket. 
How many go, that's pretty expensive? That's a little pricey. And yet, it's so popular in Japan that every concert sold out. Totally sold out. And after the concert, many of the people will come to him and talk to him because, you see, the Christian message is a message of hope. And they come to talk to him about that. And the other thing they come to chat with him about is they talk to him about death, which is really kind of a taboo topic for a polite Japanese society. But as a result of the message, they start talking to him about this. And many of them have come to know Christ as their Savior. The surprising success of this music in touching the lives of one of probably the most secular, one of the most secularized nations on earth has led Lutheran theologian Yasha Kuzu Takuzin to call Bach a vehicle of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but that's, that's pretty exciting to think that after your death, your life is still touching and influencing people in a positive way. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I think that's kind of an amazing thing. I think that you're outliving yourself in a sense and still reaching out in people's lives. I remember when I went to Bible college years ago. This is, you know, I've been in school for a long time. I figured out I think I've done 21 years of graduate work. That's because I'm a slow learner. And I, <laughs> and I take a course at a time. But neither here nor there. Um, when I was in Bible college, one of the first classes I took was a course in music, and I still remember my teacher sharing this thought, and it kind of registered and stayed within my soul, and it went something like this. Music has the ability to transcend our minds and speak right into our spirit, right into our innermost being. You know, it's amazing how music does that. Impacts us at a very intense level. And is it any wonder that music actually fills the pages of the Bible? As a matter of fact, when we were opening the Psalms, there's 150 of them, Actually, the Psalms are actually poetry. How many know that? They're actually poetry. And most of the poetry is set to music. Now, we don't all know exactly what the musical score was for these Psalms, but it's interesting they were set to music. And that's because music has a way of helping us remember lyrics that we want to communicate um, to people. So... It's also interesting that the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians states this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you do what? You sing psalms, which we just read one, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. I don't know about you, but we, now we're getting a picture. We're even encouraged strongly. We're, actually, I think we're commanded. This text is actually an imperative. It's a command that you and I actually sing. Now, some of you in this room said, Pastor, you don't want me singing. You've never heard my voice. But I want to just say this, that God is very interested in you singing. And I'm going to make another thought here that might shatter some of your reason for not singing. God gave you the voice you have. And he wants you to sing. So that, all of a sudden, that's not going to fly before God that, well, I don't sing because I don't have a good voice. God goes, no. What I'm looking for is everybody singing. And God is listening to the heart. God is listening to our, our internal being. I, I don't know about you, but uh, it is, it's great to come into a situation where people know how to sing. Probably one of the most moving experiences in my life happened in 1996. 
I had the privilege of attending a pastor's, a minister's conference. Just, it was just men pastors. I, I believe in women's pastors. But this was just a, a conference. It was put on by Promise Keepers, which was a ministry to men. And they invited ministers to come to Atlanta, Georgia. 44,000 people were in the Georgia Dome. That's where they play football and, you know, soccer. I mean, it's a big auditorium. And I got to go to this event. And, you know, we had moments where we sang. And it, it was absolutely quite dynamic. I'll just put it to you that way. Because you have to just imagine with me, you know, we're worshiping God. There's 44,000 ministers. You know what I notice about ministers? They're not ashamed to sing. It's just been my experience with ministers. They just, like, they sing with all their heart. So, like, you know, I was in the kingdom in Seattle when the Promise Keepers had 60,000 men singing. Uh, didn't touch what happened in Atlanta because a lot of guys didn't sing, you know? It's kind of like most churches, you know, a lot of people don't sing. But ministers, they all sang. And so when you had 44,000 ministers singing, you get the sense that they're singing with every fiber of their being and the place exploded. And it was so dynamic, I was actually weeping. I was so emotionally overcome at times by the singing. And what was really exciting was when we left the Georgia Dome. How many have ever been to Atlanta? Just, I'm just curious, how many have ever had that privilege of being to Atlanta? Well, Atlanta has a, a, a kind of a, a, what do you call it, rapid transit system called the MURDA. And you get on the rapid transit system, and so now men are leaving, the pastors are leaving the Georgia Dome, 44,000. You've all left an event where there's a lot of people. Maybe you went to the hockey game. Maybe even, even when you go to the Rebels game, there's about five or 6,000. You maybe go to the Oilers game or the Flames game, there's about 20,000. This is 44,000. This is about almost half the population of our city leaving an auditorium singing. And because they're ministers, they actually know the words, you know? <laughs> And they're all singing, and they got on the, 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 the transit, and people are singing. And I, I tell you, it was an amazing few days. I mean, the city was impacted because you have, you know, 44,000 people singing in a city as they're leaving. And, you know, people that were Christians that, you know, were standing around there, they were overcome by the singing, began to join us. And so people were singing through the city. It was a very moving event. Now, I'm bringing this up for a reason, that there's power in music. We need to understand that. You know, sometimes we, we think of, well, I, you know, we have preferences of style and all the rest of it, but I'm not talking about that today. I'm talking about singing unto God is a very profound thing. You know, it was actually said by Pope Leo X. Pope Leo X was actually the pope that was battling with Martin Luther in the 16th century. Some of you may know a little bit of church history. This was called the Reformation. And Martin Luther was a doctor of theology. He was a Catholic priest. And he was concerned about some of the things in the Catholic church that had gone askew. Now, they've corrected some of those things today. So that's not true of that church today. But they were selling what they called indulgences, which was the forgiveness of sins. How many think that's kind of sad when you're making money on, and, and in profiting at the expense of people and dealing with their emotional well-being about the sake of sin. I mean, how many know that this is a gift God gives, but how can the church sell it? Luther was upset about this, and he was talking about it, and so um, there was a conflict. You know, it became a political thing between Luther and the Pope, and he was excommunicated. We all know the history. 
or at least some of us know the history. You can look it up, Martin Luther. Type that in, you'll find it very intriguing. But Pope Leo X said this. He said, the thing that he feared the most about Luther was the singing. He didn't fear the theology. He feared the singing because the singing brought the theology of Luther to the common person. And they were able to remember it because they were singing it. There's something powerful about singing. Uh, Campbell Morgan, uh, a, a British uh, preacher, said, Luke is the only one who has recorded for us the outbursts of poetry and music in connection with the incarnation. I've already talked about that. The incarnation, God becoming a human being, God becoming man. That's what Christmas is all about. I know a lot of people are confused. You know, that's why we're, we even have society now trying to change the name of Christmas to the happy holidays. You know? No, no, it's Christmas is about God becoming flesh, God becoming man, God becoming fully man, fully God becomes fully man in the incarnation. And Luke is the only one that puts it to music. Matthew doesn't tell anything about the songs, but Luke, the Greek, the artist, himself a poet as well as a scientific man, he was a doctor, physician. When he was investigating and getting these stories, he obtained the copies of these beautiful songs. And so from him we gain the beatitude of, of Elizabeth, the Magnificant of Mary, the Benedictus of Zacharias, and the Numdominis of Simeon. That, that's, these are Latin terms, if you didn't know that. The evangel sung by the angel of the Lord over the plains and the gloria of the angelic host. So, Mary's response. You have to understand the context. Every Jewish girl had a dream, a hope in her heart that one day she would be the mother of the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would come and rescue their people. And Mary had that dream, but the only problem was the angel showed up before she was married. And because she had not known a human being, she had never had any sort of sexual encounter with a, a man. And when the angel said to you, you're going to be the mother of the Son of God, she says, how can this thing be? I've never known a man. And the angel said, what's going to be conceived in you is going to be that which is from God. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God deposited a seed in her womb. It's not a weird thing. It's just, that's the way it happened. It was a miracle. Some people say, Pastor, I have such a problem believing in miracles. And folks, I have no problem with it. And I'll tell you why. How many know it's a lot easier to believe that God created our world than to believe that our world just happened per chance? Think about the amazing design of humanity, you know, the sense of, uh, of order that was brought out of chaos. And when you start studying, you know, this created world, you start studying the human body, you're so amazed at the amazing miracle of life. And so I have no problem believing in the miracle. And so this is the absolute most dynamic miracle that God would become a man born in the womb of a woman. I mean, that's just amazing. And so now we have Mary who hears the message and Luke records for us because actually Mary was one of his correspondents that told him this stuff. Luke was being told this information by Mary, the mother of Jesus, and so Mary tells of this beautiful song she sang when she got the news. And it starts in Luke chapter 1 and verse 46. And after the angel had said all of these things, and she said, may it be so. She said, I believe it. And therefore she began to experience this miracle. It says here, my, she says in song, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
What I noticed about her song was that it was a response from her innermost being. Well, let me go back here and say it. We're going to talk about three reasons why we should sing. The first is that we rejoice in our salvation. Notice that Mary begins to rejoice from her innermost being. Her soul sings out. She's deeply aware of her own need of a Savior. You know, all of us need a Savior. And we all need a personal Savior. You say, well, why do we need a Savior, Pastor? Because we've all sinned. We've all committed sin. I know our culture is uncomfortable with this term. It's like a word that's going by way of the dodo bird. You know, it's trying to, we're trying to extinct the term. But the problem with it is, is that we all know we have problems. There's not one single human being that can't say, I live life perfectly. I don't violate my own conscience or I don't do something to be disruptive and hurtful in another person's life. Even when I'm trying to be good, sometimes it's hard. Isn't that true? Yeah, we've all sinned, the Bible says, and come short of the glory of God. We've all failed in some measure or other. You know, we've all caused problems. Sometimes people are in denial. I know there's a lot of people, you know, when, back in the 70s, a book came out that says, I'm okay, you're okay, and we were, we're trying to tell each other everything's okay. But it's just a great case of living in denial because how many know there's problems? And when we're realistic and authentic, we say, let's just talk about it and say, hey, there's some issues that need to be addressed. There's, there's things that are wrong in this world. And, and then you have to bring up the whole issue of evil. Why is there evil in the world, you know? And, of course, we want to blame God for all the evil in the world. You know, why does God allow this stuff? We have all these kind of questions coming at us. And my answer to people is simple, you know. God created us in his image but when he did that, he gave us something that's unique to God, and that's a will. And you, he gave us the same thing. We have a, an ability to choose. And you can't, you know, you can't be a, a person with freedom in your life if you don't have choice. How many know that's true? And so God gave us this freedom to choose, and we can choose between what's good or what's wrong, what's evil. And unfortunately, you know, as humanity, we've chosen evil. You know, we've, we've done the wrong thing. And the moment that happens, it creates ramifications and sometimes we can look back with regret and say, I wish I'd have never done that. I wish I hadn't have said that. You know, but we can't pull those things back. They have you know, consequences. They're like dropping a rock into the pond. You know, there's a, a ripple that goes out and it impacts. And so we have this sin issue in our life that we have to address. But we're incapable of addressing our own mess. We're too steeped into it. You know, you can't, you know when you're drowning in it, you can't really save yourself. Oh, we'd like to think we can, and we're trying to save ourselves, but so often all we're doing is drowning at a faster level. And so here with the good news, that's what the, that's what the gospel is. It means good news. The good news is God came to our planet so he could address the problem that we're dealing with called sin. And that's why we need the Savior. And she was deeply aware of it. All of us are in need of a Savior. And then we see the loving kindness that drew God to do this. And it says in Titus, but when the kindness of God and the love of God our Savior appeared. And I don't know, the last few months I've been trying to get across this idea that God is a loving God, you know. And I think God gets a bad rap. And we don't understand, you know, this, this whole concept, even from the Old Testament, this has said in the Hebrew language, that the scholars can't even explain to us this, this word 
this hesed, this Hebrew word hesed, which means sometimes translated loving kindness or faithful love or covenant love. It's, it's a beautiful word, and it's the nature of God. And, I, and I've tried to preach in the last two years out of the book of Job about all the difficulty Job had, that even though there's justice and, and God is just, that God is not ultimately ruling the world through justice, but he's ruling the world through mercy and love. And sometimes God's love is so great we almost think it's unjust. And I tried to bring that out a few weeks ago in one of the beautiful parables we looked at. But here, what I'm trying to point out is that when the kindness of God and the love of our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved us from what, Pastor? From our sins. Not because of righteous things we have done. So often people say, you know, you know I deserve this, but there's nobody that deserves to be forgiven. You see, we're not waiting to be good enough to be accepted by God. God comes to us when we can't help ourselves. That's why we need a Savior. And it says, because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We must ever remind ourselves is that all of our giving to God is, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, a value only in that he loves our intention. What do you mean by that? Well, let me quote Lewis here. For all of our offerings, whether of music or martyrdom, are like the intrinsically worthless present of a child, which a father loves indeed, but values only for the intention. Let me, my, I have a granddaughter. I'll, use, I'll tell a grandfather's story. I don't do that. I'm pretty good. I've been pretty mellow about not telling grandfather's stories, but I'm going to, Stoop to this one because I think it really helps illustrate it. My little granddaughter attends our church. Her name's Ariella. She's little over two. And she was in the nursery and they had, you know, they were coloring. And she was all excited. She calls me Poppy. She came running up to the front door, Poppy, Poppy, and she gives me this picture that she did some coloring. Now I'm going to tell you right now, she does not stay in the lines. <clears throat> and she doesn't color all the white spots. She just you know, wildly covers a lot of ground. And so when you look at it, it does not look like a masterpiece. But you know what? I am so excited to receive this beautiful picture by my granddaughter that it's on our fridge. It's a masterpiece. Why? Because my granddaughter colored it. Are you getting the picture? And all the things that we do in this life that we think are awesome, and maybe they are, they're beautiful, God, you know, we're not, we're not adding anything to God. There's nothing you and I can give to God. He has everything. But what he loves is when you and I give him our lives. When you and I give him everything we got, he sees our intention. He loves it. You know, how many see God as someone who rejoices over you? See, I know what the Bible says. I know that when God draws us to himself and we receive Christ, it says he rejoices over us. He, he's excited about us. He's a proud dad. We need to understand that. So I think a lot of people have a very unhealthy view of God, and because of that, it affects how they, how they live life and how they serve God or don't serve God because they don't see God correctly. And the Bible reveals to us who God is and what he's really like. Mary worshiped because of the child that was to be born within her. Think of it, Christ in her. Christ was born in her. The sinless son of God being born in her. How many think that's pretty high privilege? It's pretty, pretty intense. But you know what? I'm going to give you guys a picture tonight, today that I think is very powerful. You know, is 
is our, is our condition any less than hers? Because when you and I receive Christ by faith, Christ is born in us. See, Christ in us. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul said it this way in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles. That's the non-Jewish people. God's now including not just Jewish people, but everybody in. The glorious riches of this mystery. What's the glorious riches of this mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I'm going to tell you something. If this one verse, if you ever got it, it would change your life. You go, what do you mean it would change my life, Pastor? When you receive Christ by faith, Christ comes in you. Jesus Christ lives inside of you. You know, the Bible says we are the temple of God. We are the habitation of God. We are the house of God. God lives inside of us. Now, I remember as a brand new Christian, you know, I, I had prayed, I'd asked Jesus into my life, but you know, we use, you know, we use terminology sometimes in the church and it just kind of flies around. You know, we ask Jesus into our hearts. What does that really mean? Well, I remember reading this verse one day as a brand new Christian. I was doing my quiet time, a little devotional time. I was reading my Bible, you know, and I, I got to this passage in the Holy Spirit. I just kind of camped here and it just came alive to me. God lives in me. Now, you have to understand, the Bible says God is the one whom the universe cannot contain. The universe can't contain God. He's so great. Okay? All of a sudden, I had this thought, God's living inside of me. Well, you know, that, that's a pretty revolutionary thought. How many think that? You might get a little excited. You know, God's living in me. Woo! This is pretty dynamic stuff. I mean, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are living in me. God is living in me. You go, Pastor, you believe that? I go, absolutely. I totally believe this. I believe God lives inside of me. As a matter of fact, the grasp of the truth of that reality that we are the people of God's presence. You know what, what makes Christians distinct isn't that we're better than people. That's not the issue. No, no, because sometimes we mess up. We're still fallen. We still have, you know, a sin nature that we're overcoming. But what makes us unique is that God, God's presence is with us. God is within us. And that is very dynamic. We are bringing God's presence wherever we go. That ought to shape our thinking a little bit. And uh, he's, he's not only with us, but within us. Christianity is more than just propositional truth. See, I think that's what happens sometimes. We, we have all the right thinking, but it's, it's deeper than that. It has to become experiential. It has to become subjective. It has to be within us. It's not just about knowing God, but you know, but God living within us, understanding that we are, you know, it is God who lives, you know, in, in him we live and move and have our being. As Paul, uh, as Luke says in Luke, uh, Acts chapter 17, in him we live and move and have our being. God is the one that's controlling and, and orchestrating and directing our lives far more than we realize. It's, it's really exciting to know that God is, is really overseeing our lives to the a great detail. I, I'm going to share a story. I just read this. I got so excited about this. It, it moved me. A young man who was fighting in World War II, and uh, his boat went down. He was, you know, there was a battle, and his ship went down. And, of course, he had a life, life preserver on, you know. So he uses it. And, uh, and so then he's rescued, but then, you know, but then that ship is sunk, and he's still in the life jacket. So now this is like he's back in the ocean. And he's, he finally gets rescued, and 
the thing he's hanging on is to this, this, this life preserver, this life jacket, you know. And he notices that there's a little, how many know that's kind of significant when something that's, something like, a small thing like a life preserver keeps you alive. You kind of get a little excited about it. He's looking at this thing and he noticed it was made in Akron, Ohio by the Firestone Company. And it had a number on it. And so when he finally came home, he happened to be from Akron, Ohio. This is amazing. And he, and he said to his mom, because he knew she worked for Firestone, he said, Mom, he said, you know, I was out there and this life preserver saved me and I, I realized it was made from your factory. And uh, he said there was a number on it. What's the number mean? She says, well, the number means that every inspector has a number and they make sure that every life preserver works and it's their job to make sure that as, as the inspector that everyone they inspected actually functions properly. She says, why? What was the number? And he said, you know, I memorized it because believe it or not, this life preserver, that, that's, that's what kept me afloat. And he read off the number and she began to weep because it was her number. Now you gotta tell me. You go, that's just a little bit spooky, Pastor. Well, that's the way God works sometimes. He does some very interesting things in our lives. He's a very detailed God. You know, he's orchestrating our lives far more than we realize. And when you and I are willing to surrender our lives and say, okay, God, I'm gonna do things your way instead of my way, things are a lot different than we realize. So there's another aspect, another element regarding this expression of praise that Mary was able to sing even before it happened. You know, it's one thing to sing after, you know, something happens. How many like it when, you know, you have a good thing happen in your life? You ever have a joyful thing? You want to do the happy dance? You know, they have commercials, you know, you win the lottery, you do the little happy dance. You know, that's after the fact. But how would you like to be able to do the happy dance before it happens? You see, I think it takes faith to believe what's being said. And so Mary gets this message before it happens and she bursts into praise and adoration. In her mind, if God says it, it's gonna be as good as done. And you know, I'm gonna tell you something. There's something to be said about believing what God says even before we experience the total reality and fulfillment of it. Do you know God says we're going to, we're gonna be with him one day for eternity? I believe it. I rejoice in it today before it's actually fully realized. You say, well, pastor, you must have faith then. I say, that's exactly right, I have faith. But I have faith, I don't believe in just a nebulous thing. I believe our faith is built in a historical context. Jesus Christ actually lived. Jesus Christ lived on this planet, folks. And when you go to Israel, which we're gonna be there in a few months, Patty and I and a bunch of people, it's a very powerful place to be standing in the places where Jesus stood 2,000 years before and did certain things on those spots. It's actually based on history. This is not a mythological scenario. Some people would say, well, yeah, he may have lived, he may have done these things, but you Christians have taken it too far. I don't think so. I don't think so. Jesus made a declaration that he would rise again from the dead. And you know, it would have been really easy to dispel that myth if it was a myth. But for 2,000 years, the church has been growing. It's a very dynamic thing. And you say, why do you believe it so strongly, Pastor? Because I've experienced it. I've experienced the difference a Christian life makes. How many realize it's one thing to sing when the promises of God are realized and quite another to sing when we're living in the hope of their fulfillment? 
I think it's powerful that we need to learn how to do this because it changes life the way we live it. You know, as Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher of another generation, pointed out, there's a song to be sung when God promises and another song to be sung when God answers. I like that. In other words, we sing when God promises and then we sing when God fulfills it. Mary was singing for the promise to come. We also discovered that the song is personal. Look at what it says in verse 46. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You know, we can, you know, the Protestant church tends to devalue Mary. The Catholic church tends to evaluate and the Orthodox church puts her pretty high up, right? I think she's somewhere between. I think she was an amazing girl. Young woman, woman of faith, who embraced God's promises, had to experience ridicule and shame, right? She's a heroine. Come on now, guys, gals. Isn't that true? She's a heroine. She was willing to do something that, you know, cost her something. And actually, when she dedicated Jesus after the eighth day, Simeon, a man of God, came and prophesied over and said, you know what, you're gonna, he's going to bring great joy, but this joy you're going to experience is also going to have a, a sense of sorrow. The sword's going to pierce your side. And what he was basically saying to her was that there's going to come a day when you're experiencing great sorrow because of Jesus. And you know what that day was? It was the day when Jesus hung on a cross. Because you remember something, when you're an adult and your children die before you, that's a tremendous experience of grief. I haven't had that. But you see, in a, in a person's mind, it's really hard to lose a child. And the reason being is because in all of our minds, we think we should outlive our children. And some of you have had this experience where a child has died before you. And you've experienced that grief. Mary experienced that grief, seeing her son dying on the cross. Knowing he was the savior of the world. Knowing that he had to do this to save her and all of us from our sins. She personalized it. She needed a savior. Mary couldn't save herself. She needed a savior as well. Let me move on to say this, that singing is the natural language of joy. Isn't that true? You know, singing is the natural language of joy. Spurgeon said that. That's the response in life. How many know when you come into a room and somebody's singing, what is the first thing that hits her mind? What do you say to them? What are you so happy about, right? You know, because singing in our minds is that when we're happy, we sing, right? When we're sad, the Bible says we should pray. But when we are happy, we should sing. And there is a moment as a Christian that we have, you know, sorrow in our life. Yes, there's sorrow. There's times to lament. The Psalms have laments in them. But let me just say this. Joy does not mean an absence of sorrow. You can actually have joy in spite of sorrow. Joy is not happiness, which is determined by your circumstances. Joy is something greater. Joy is the result of God's presence with you, and you recognize it. See, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Remember those beautiful fruit? See, and what I'm trying to get across to you today is that God designed you and I to sing. God designed you and I to have joy. God designed us so that we could experience this wonderful gift of salvation and experience this amazing life and really enjoy it and actually that we could be the people that are walking around whistling and singing and humming and you know, people are going, man, why are you always so happy? You know? And especially powerful when you're going through a very difficult time in your life, true, and you're still singing. 
That's when, that, that's when you're really preaching the loudest. Because people know what's going on in your life and you still have a song in your heart. Can I just say, I'm gonna challenge you today. Try this. Maybe some of you have done this. How many of you have ever had an experience in your life where, you know, you've been disappointed? Are there, are there disappointments? Can I, can I tell you what I think's happening? This is my opinion. This is not in the Bible, but I think our culture promises us so much today, most of us are living with disappointment. What do you think? We have so much. And the more you have, the more you expect, and the more expectations you have, the more disappointments you're gonna experience. And I think people today are, are living with a lot of disappointment. And I'm gonna suggest to us today, there's a way to overcome the disappointment. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you an assignment. You, I don't usually give homework, but here's your homework assignment. I want you to try this. I want you, the next time you're faced with disappointment, how many think you might experience that this week? That might happen. Just, it, just per chance. I want you to write this down. I want you to sing songs of praise to God in the midst of your disappointment. I want you to try it, on, I want you to try it for at least 30 minutes. That's my, because I, I have a doctorate degree. If you, you came into me, I could write a prescription for you, okay? I'm not an MD. I don't have an MD. But I'm going to give you a spiritual prescription today. You better write this down. I don't have my pen with me. Well, yeah, I do, but I, it's a lot to write it down for all of you. Here's, here's your, my prescription for you this week. When experiencing disappointment, take 30 minutes of singing praise to God. Okay? I want you to try that and come back and talk to me next week. Tell me what happened. Because I'll tell you what will happen. And, and you'll be surprised. Your emotions are going to change. You're going to move from despair, you're going to get happy. You're going to be full of joy at the end of 30 minutes. You're going to be praising God. I know, I've done this. See, I've, I've practiced my own prescription. You will be full of joy, okay, because it's there. But most of us, we you know what we tend to do? We let life define us. We let disappointment define us. We let people with their negative comments define us. Come on now. Isn't that the truth? Sure we do. And we're all frustrated and unhappy and we, we build resentments and we're, we're, you know, we alienate and we reject and all kinds of reactions. I'm giving you the, a different response to all of that. Sing for 30 minutes, praise to God and see what happens. You're gonna come out full of joy. The first reason for singing is because we need to rejoice in what God has done for us, our salvation. The second is our recognition in our exaltation. When God comes to us, he lifts us. He picks us up. He elevates those he comes to. God does not come to us because we're special. Rather, in coming to us, God makes us special. You know, how many know that Mary was no special person until Jesus, until the angel came to her? Mary wasn't the special person until God came into her life. The moment that happened, she became a special person. I honestly can say that's true in my life. I was a nobody I was, you know, just struggling along and Jesus came into my life and totally changed it. He revolutionized my life. It was powerful. It was dramatic. That's why I'm a pastor today. You know, I'm so convinced of what I'm saying is because I've experienced it. I'm passing on my story to you. This isn't not just something that doesn't work. I'm only telling you what works. This works. Marvin Pate points out, Mary calls attention to the great reversal that occurs in her life. God has removed her from obscurity and a lowly status to the pinnacle of being exalted by all future generations. Look, the reason for such blessing on Mary is not due to her own worthiness, but rather because of the greatness of her son. Notice what it says in verse 48. 
for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. How many know Mary's been called blessed? True, right? She says it. She says, listen, I was an obscure Judean girl living in an obscure little town. Nazareth, you know, Nathaniel said, what good thing can come out of Nazareth? I love that. You know, isn't that God good? He usually takes the lowly and broken things of the world to confound those that are wise and those that are strong. He takes those kinds of things. Think of what God has done for us. Listen to what the psalmist writes. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to my God. You know, I can tell how good we're doing spiritually by how we're singing. How do you like that? Well, I don't sing, Pastor. That tells me something. You know? Some of you just think I'm crazy up here. You know, I get into it. I like sitting in the front row because I feel bad for you guys in the other rows. You're restricted. You know, the empty front rows, I would be taking those because there's a little more room to move. And I like to get into it. When I worship God, I want to worship God with all that I am. That includes my whole body. Bible says lift your hands, clap your hands, shout, all this good stuff. You know, we go, does it say that? Yeah, read the Bible. So when I worship God, I want to worship God with everything inside of me. I want to sing at the top of my lungs. So it's a good thing you're probably not close to me. You'd be hearing me sing, you know, because I'm going to go for it. And you got, sometimes I've been in our church, not recently, but I've been in our church sometimes and it seemed like, you know, wow, you think there's more excitement at a hockey game. Going, what's the deal? Little round disc going into a net. Everyone's going nuts, standing on their feet, jumping, cheering, shouting, crying, stomping, the whole nine yards. I'm going, hey, something far greater than that happened. Jesus rose from the dead, delivered me from my sin. Hallelujah. You know? So I get a little excited. Yeah. I'm just pointing the stuff out, you know? We, we get excited about the wrong stuff. Look where God's elevated us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Talking about a place of authority. I love the story. It's a parable. It's told of a wealthy father and his only son. They love to collect rare works of art, everything from Picasso to Raphael. And then the Vietnam conflict broke out. The son went to war. He died in battle while rescuing his fellow members of his platoon. Meanwhile, his father's at home deeply grieving the loss of his son. About a month later, there's a knock at the door. A young man stands with a large package in his hands. He says, sir, you don't know me, but I am the actual soldier that your son gave up his life to save. He saved many lives that day, but I was the one that he was carrying when he was actually shot and killed. He said, he had often talked about your great love for art. He said, now, I know this is not much, but I, and I'm not a great artist, but I do, I'm doing this in memory of your son, and I know your, your son would want you to have this. And so he op- the father opened the package. He gazed at this beautiful rendish, rendering of his son. He stared in awe at the way the soldier had captured his son in the painting. And so the father, like, like the grandfather, hung it in a prominent place, in the mantle, over uh, the portrait over his mantle. When visitors would come to his home, he always drew attention to that portrait before he would show them any of the other masterpieces. And then there was a day when the father died. His paintings were to be auctioned. 
Many influential people gathered, excited about the opportunity to purchase these amazing paintings. And the platform sat the painting of the sun. The auctioneer began, pounding his gavel and asking for someone to start the bidding. The crowd scoffed and they demanded the Van Goghs and the Rembrandts, but the auctioneer persisted. Who will start the bidding? $200, $100. The crowd again insisted on seeing the famous painting. Still the auctioneer solicited, the sun, the sun, who will take the sun? Finally, a voice at the back said, I'll give $10 for the painting. The longtime gardener of the father was poor, and he couldn't afford more. And while the auctioneer continued to pursue a higher bid, the crowd became angry. The auctioneer finally pounded the gavel and said, Soul for $10 to the gardener. An eager buyer from the second row bellowed, Finally, we can get on with the auction. But the auctioneer said, I'm sorry. This, the auction is now over. When I was called to conduct this auction, I was told of a secret stipulation in the will. I was not allowed to reveal that stipulation until this time. Only the painting of the sun would be auctioned. And whoever bought that painting would inherit the entire estate, including all the other paintings. The man who took the sun gets everything. Oh, I love that story. Oh, I'll tell you why. You know why? You're getting the picture. It's a picture, isn't it? When you and I receive the sun, when we receive Christ, we get everything. We're lifted up. Without him, we end up with nothing. Let me just move on here to the final reason for our singing. First, we looked at it was to rejoice in our salvation, to recognize our exaltation, and finally, a regard for God's provision for us. It's not because of us that we're so exalted. Rather, it's because of his nature, his love, his mercy, his goodness, that we're noticed by God. The greatest gift that you and I can give anyone is what? It's the gift of ourselves. Isn't this amazing? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his only begotten son. That means the uncreated son, Jesus Christ. That whosoever would believe in him would not, would not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. Wow. You know what's amazing? Mary goes on to say in her, her song, she says, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Notice how she's talking about God. You know, Pastor Mark and I are taking a course on holiness right now. It's amazing. You know that word holy? You know what it really means? It means to be other than what we are. God is not like us. He's beyond us, folks. You know, I, one of the great tragedy in the church world today is we're trying to make God in our image rather than to really understand his image and allow God's spirit to change us into his image, to make us what we were originally designed to be. We were made in the image of God. And sin is what mars God's image. And so when you and I have a wrong understanding of who God is, we're gonna, we're gonna actually come out wrong. You know, you have to have the right pattern, right? You have to see the right image. God is otherworldly. He's beyond us in so many ways. He's holy, Mary says. Then she goes on to say here, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Oh, I love this. You know, you know what my thought is? And I read this in other texts in the scriptures. That, you know, God, when he not only reaches into our lives, he's, not, he's reaching into our future. He's reaching into our children's lives and our grandchildren's life. It's very powerful, you know. I'm praying for my children and my grandkids. I'm praying, Lord, help them to be great in the land. Because there's a scripture that actually says the righteous shall be great in the land. See, I believe that. You guys believe that kind of stuff? I believe that with all my heart. I believe that our children can you know, have an incredible, indelible impact and influence because our conversion you know, changes everything. Then it goes on 
She goes on to say here, he has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. Do you know the greatest problem we have is, our, is ourselves? It's our pride. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. Do you know what it means to be humble? We think of it in a negative way. Let me tell you what it really means. It means to be solely dependent on God. A humble person is a person that doesn't have to have their way. Why? Because they know that God's going to work out his will, and that's all they want anyways. Isn't that great? Isn't that all this manipulating and backbiting and clawing and chewing and all the stuff people do? That's because, you know what? They're insecure and they want something in this life and they're going for it. But they're usually doing it at their own personal expense and at the expense of others. It's true. And she says, God brings down the proud, but he elevates the humble. He lifts up those people who are trusting in him. It's an amazing thought. God will get you to where you need to go. You just need to trust him. You know, it was interesting, Warren Worsby says it this way, the common people of that day were almost helpless when they came to justice and civil rights. They were often hungry, downtrodden, discouraged, and there was no way for them to fight the system. As a matter of fact, a secret society of patriotic Jewish extremists called the Zealots used violent means to oppose Rome, but their actions or their activities made matters only worse. If you study the history, it's really tragic. You know, they rebelled against Rome and they were totally destroyed. Jesus came as the Messiah to set the people free. But it wasn't from Rome. It was from their sin. It was a spiritual kingdom. That is our greatest need. Still the greatest need today. To be set free from ourselves. From our own sin. From the captivity that sin brings. From the addictions that sin brings. God wants to set us free. What a powerful thing. Let me close with this, with this story. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper recounts how his father, John Piper's a Baptist. His, his father was a fiery Baptist evangelist. And he, he continually retold the story of one man that uh, who had, they had prayed. This church had prayed for decades. For, it was, must have been a smaller community. People knew everybody in town. You know how those small communities are. And he was hard. He was resistant. And then there came the day when he was in the twilight of his life and he came to a service and he heard the gospel being preached and he came forward at the end of the service during a hymn to everyone's astonishment and he walked up to the evangelist, took him by the hand and said, I want to receive Christ. And while Piper's father was sharing with this man and he gave his life to Christ, he was so broken by the fact that he had wasted his life that he was sobbing and said, I've wasted it, I've wasted it. But I want to say something to you. Even a life that seems almost totally wasted can be redeemed. And I love how the Scottish theologian Thomas Boston once said, he said, our present existence is only a short preface to a long eternity. How many have ever read a book that's a preface? Maybe it's a page or two or three or four and then the entire book. He said, what he was basically saying is our life is like a preface. It's a very brief moment of time and then there's all of eternity. If that is true, then man's life is not wasted after all. He was only just beginning an eternal life of endless praise. So I have the good news for you today. It's never too late. It's never too late to give our lives to Christ. Because you know what? We don't just have this life to serve a man. We have all of eternity. Let's stand. You know my prayer this Christmas season for all of us is? 
You know, how many, how many know A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens? How many know Scrooge? You know that story? It's a Christmas Carol, right? I'm going to tell you something. This is the true Christmas Carol. But you know, Charles Dickens was a Christian. People don't know that. He was making a point in that, that story. Talking about generosity. He was talking about becoming a new person. It's the same thing. We're all communicating the same message. And the message is what? That you and I will not get so caught up at Christmas. You know, sometimes at Christmas, what do we get caught up with? Running around getting gifts, family, trips. Can I, am I describing it? You know what I've noticed? That we're Christians. But attendance in church in December diminishes. What does that tell you? We're busy. You know what that tells me? Wrong priorities. That's all it tells me. I'm actually talking to the choir now because you're here and most of them are missing. You know, that's the way it works. But it's the truth. What am I trying to get across to today? Let's make this year's Christmas different. How do we do that? Putting Christ at the center. Making him the priority. This is the reason why we celebrate Christmas is because God became flesh to die for us. And yet I think we totally missed the whole thing. We get caught up with the, you know, what culture tells us it's all about. They even want to change the name now from Merry Christmas to Happy Holidays. Because they want to take Christ out of Christmas. Right? It's true. It's the way it's working. But you know what? It doesn't matter if the culture does that. They can't do that for me. Christ is in my Christmas. Because Christ is at the center of my life. That's what's the most important thing. And I want to challenge you this morning. Maybe you're here today with just every head bowed for a minute. You say, you know, Pastor, you know, maybe I've, I've heard the gospel. I've heard about Jesus. I've heard this stuff before. But you know what? It's all been in my head. It's never been in my heart. I've never experienced it. I want you to have such an experience with Christ that you're going to be singing. Isn't that great? Because I'll tell you, when you meet Jesus, I, I can still remember this. When I met Jesus... The Christmas carols all of a sudden go, I didn't even know they were singing the right words. I mean, they were singing the gospel. Before, I just thought those were the tunes we sang at Christmas time. Talk about how stupid I was, right? That's how blind I was. I didn't know that. But the moment Christ came into my heart, I began to cry when I listened to Christmas carols because they're singing the gospel. Listen to them very carefully. Oh, come all ye faithful, joy to the world. But the Lord, Yahweh, God, has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart do what? Prepare room. For whom? Christ. That's the gospel. Prepare your heart to prepare room for Christ. It's a takeoff of the story. There was no room for him, him in the end. See how beautiful these carols are. This is the Bible, folks. Maybe you're here today. So I've never experienced this, Pastor, but I want it today. I want this to be real in my life. I don't want it to just be something I've heard about. I want to experience it. And that's you today. Just raise your hand. I'll pray with you. Anybody here this morning? God bless you. Yes, God bless you. Great. It's wonderful. Terrific. People are responding to them. Great. Now, for the rest of us, some of us who've done this before, great. We've given our lives to Christ. Let me ask this question. How many here say, Pastor, I have to confess that joy is not dominating my life. I've let disappointment and despair and sorrow and all these other things to crowd into my life right now. That's you. But you know what? I want joy. I want joy to be returned to my soul today. Just look at him. That's you. I want joy to be. I want to recapture joy in my life. Oh, wonderful. I'm going to pray this morning. See? You know what? 
My prayer is you're going to leave here singing. It won't just be a bunch of ministers leaving Atlanta, Georgia, don't sing. I want you to be singing all the time. I'm, my prayer is that all week long, all this month, the happiest people at your place of employment are you guys. They'll be happy. You'll be singing. You'll be praising God. They'll be going, man, you're in a good mood. What's going on? What's up? See? You keep thinking, i got to find a way to share with my neighbor. No, you start singing praises to God. I guarantee they'll be asking you why you're happy. Amen? How many of us true? It is the truth. No. Listen to what Peter says. You know, this gospel brings joy unspeakable and full of glory. The joy is so great you can't even explain it. Right? Start singing praises to God. See what happens. Joy will be the end result. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Amen. Lord, I thank you this morning. Such attentive hearts. Lord, I just pray that you will fill the heart. People have prepared room. You saw them all. They raised their hand. They said, Lord, I want room for you in my life. I want room for you in my heart. I want to experience what Mary experienced. I want to experience the presence of the risen Christ in my life. Lord, hear the cry this morning. I pray for others that have said, I've allowed the disappointments of life. I've allowed the sorrows. I've allowed the difficulties of life to rob me. I've allowed difficult people to rob me of the joy that really belongs to me. Lord, I pray today, put a song in our hearts. And then the days to come, may we sing with such great joy, Father. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.